Hello, my name is Kristen Smith, and I'm the founder of Sight Black Women. Welcome to another episode of our Sight Black Women podcast. It's Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and this year we celebrate Dr. King's 90th birthday. Today, we want to begin our program by acknowledging the myriad Black women who surrounded Dr. King and not only helped to build his vision, but built the movement that made him into the icon that we celebrate today. From Septima Clark to Coretta Scott King, Dr. King's legacy is not and never has been just about one man. Instead, it is the commemoration of a movement that in many ways was authored and driven by Black women. We don't have the time today to highlight all of the Black women that helped to shape the civil rights movement and the work of Dr. King, but we would like to spend a few minutes talking about the legacy of Ella Baker, who was absolutely fundamental to building the civil rights movement and to the fight for justice in that era. Ella Baker was born on December 13, 1903 in Norfolk, Virginia, and died on December 13, 1986. She served as an NAACP leader and branch director. She was executive secretary of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And in 1960, at Shaw University, she organized the founding conference of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC. Ms. Baker was known for her fierce fighting spirit and her uncompromising dedication to justice. In her biography of Ella Baker, Barbara Ransby writes, Ella Baker was a skilled grassroots organizer and an organic intellectual, one who learned lessons from the street more than from the academy and who sought to understand the world in order to change it. Indeed, as we celebrate the legacy of Dr. King, we would be remiss not to remember Ella Baker and the contributions she made to the fight for Black freedom in the United States. Ella Baker shaped generations of Black freedom fighters, both during her life and long after it. She also helped to shape, if only indirectly, the work of activist scholars who seek to connect grassroots organizing and the intellectualism of the academy. Few scholars embody this legacy more than Dr. Kishikan Perry of Brown University, and it is my interview with her that I did at the National Women's Studies Association meetings in November 2018 that we will air today for this podcast. Kishikan Perry is a feminist anthropologist and political activist whose research focuses on urban social movements against the violence of forced displacement. She is the author of the prize-winning book, Black Women Against the Land Grab, The Fight for Racial Justice in Brazil, an ethnographic study of Black women's activism for housing and land rights in the northeastern Brazilian city of Salvador. With an emphasis on the United States, Jamaica, and Brazil, she continues to write on issues of Black land ownership and loss and the related gendered racial logics of Black dispossession in the African diaspora. She recently served on the Latin American Studies Association delegation to investigate the impeachment of Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff. I met Dr. Kishikan Perry years ago in Bahia when she was working closely and alongside with Black women fighting for land rights in Salvador. She was, and still is, one of the people that, for me, exemplifies activist scholarship and activist research in everything that she does. She not only talks the talk, but she walks the walk when it comes to merging politics and praxis. In our conversation, 
we discuss not only citation and radical Black feminist praxis, but also the imperative of transnational solidarity in our citational practices. She champions the need for us all to decolonize our Black feminist practices by doing more to incorporate Black feminist voices from non-Anglophone spaces like Latin America. I think that in many ways, her work has been a rallying cry for anti-imperialism and global Black solidarity. This was a really fun interview to do, and so I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. We are here at the National Women's Studies Association meetings in Atlanta, Georgia, and it's November 8th, 2018. Welcome, Dr. Perry, to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Smith. We met over almost about 20 years ago in Brazil, and you were one of the first people to really emphasize to me the importance of citational politics and how that really weaves into our work as Black women in the academy. Can you talk a little bit about citational politics and the importance for Black women? That's an important question, um, and it's been a delight um, in terms of knowing you for over these um, past two decades. Um, I would say that I started off reading a lot of Patricia Hill Collins in undergrad um, and in graduate school, and she's very committed to a certain kind of citational politics. And she's been very committed to citing scholars of color, um, especially in the field of sociology, where they had been given little voice or, been t- or had not been taken seriously as scholars. So she had actually written explicitly about what it means um, to cite scholars of color in terms of in in terms of the majority when you're writing even a full length manuscript. So when I got to graduate school um, and reading that, I said, "Wow, this is really possible." Um, also, at that time, I read Kia Lily Caldwell's um, dissertation at the University of Texas library, the Benson Library, and I realized that she had written a dissertation focused entirely on Black women and Black women's politics. And I said, wow, you can write an entire dissertation focused on Black women and Black women's politics. And what does it then mean that you have to also foreground their ideas in terms of long, extensive citations of their ideas and their words, but also that you would have a lot of, um, give a lot of attention to Black feminist thought. Right, so that's, I think, I would say those two texts were really important, as well as taking classes with Asali Angela Johnny at the University of Texas, who's always about um, letting Black women speak for themselves, um, let them tell their own truth, stop trying to be an interpreter. Um, and I, so it's about just in terms of citing well-known scholars, as well as citing everyday Black women who have much to say about the society and the world. Absolutely. I think that one of the contributions that Patricia Hill Collins has made is really helping us to understand the way that Black women's lives and the way we live live our lives in the everyday is a process of theorizing. It is knowledge production. And one of the things that you've been doing in your research in Brazil is working with Black women who are in the grassroots um, trying to defend their land rights in Brazil. Can you talk a little bit about how that experience of field work and going to Brazil has informed your approach to valuing Black women's knowledge production? I would say that what's nice about coming into the academy without without any real experience in terms of family members or um, the only person I'd been exposed to was Kim Hall, an undergrad who is a feminist. 
I didn't have a sense of what the academic enterprise was about. So I would say I came into the academy genuinely um, interested in advancing the ideas of Black women and I, in advancing um, a politics around Black liberation, about how we were going to do research to, um, to advance um, social transformation and improve the lives of Black people. So I didn't understand the politics of the university itself and what it meant to do a certain kind of scholarship and to cite particular scholars. So when I started doing research on Black women, I wanted to listen to what they had to say. Um, a lot of what they were saying was not were not ideas produced in the academy. So I had to cite them. I had to give them credit for those ideas. Um, for example, when those activists in Brazil told me that you can't understand uh, grassroots activism without looking at the politics of labor, their everyday labor as domestic workers in predominantly white households, and the fact that they had a very intricate understanding of how white supremacy works in Brazilian society because they were actually walking through these segregated buildings and doing work in these high rises for rich white people on every day, that their knowledge came out of um, their labor. Um, and then to read a Patricia Hill Collins alongside of that, who had already theorized um, the kinds of knowledges that come out of Black women's labor, or Tara Hunter, who had already written on um, uh, domestic workers or Black women workers um, and their political movements. So to read them alongside, along each other, alongside each other, really made sense for me. So I think that to, I didn't really have the sense that well, you were supposed to prioritize academics over activists. I wanted to learn um, and figure out what story I wanted to tell and how could I tell those stories without foregrounding their ideas, right? So I think um, working with women in, in Brazil um, initially really transformed how I thought about the world. They were the ones that told me you had to pay attention to police abuse. How can you talk about police abuse? Um, and, you know, how can you talk about urban renewal when not, without looking at police abuse? I had no intention of writing about police violence. They were the ones that said you have to write about police violence. Right. So I think if you're listening, which is what Asali Angela Johnny writes about in her um, classic essay on the politics of listening, is if you're actually truly listening to black women, then it makes sense to actually foreground their ideas. Uh, if you're not listening, then everyone else <laughs> becomes a priority. Absolutely. I think it's really fascinating, something that you just said when you talked about putting the voices of Black women in Gamboa Jibaisho next to the voices of people like Tara Hunter. And earlier in our conversation, you mentioned the fact that we have to really kind of, we need to be citing the people who we're familiar with, but we also need to be pushing the boundaries and engaging with, with scholarship and with intellectual production that we're not familiar with. And for me, I really feel like that is one of the strategies of incorporating Black women into the core of your syllabus. And so one of the resolutions that Cite Black Women did in January 2018 was about talking about how do we incorporate Black women into the core of our syllabus. Yeah. And to me, juxtaposing voices um, from the community, juxtaposing voices from outside the academy with voices that are in the academy, both those that are known and lesser known, is part of that whole process. And I know that you in particular, you do a lot of teaching at Brown University um, about Black women and about Black women's lives and Black women's biographies. Can you talk a little bit about how citational politics factors into the way that you structure your classes and that and your pedagogical approach? Right. 
At some point when you've been teaching for a few years, you start to think seriously about what your political mission is. And my former colleague, Corey Walker, used to always talk about, you know, it's more than just a job, it's a vocation, right? So you start to think about, you know, what, are you, what is your mission? Um, and I, I basically came to the, to the kind of conclusion that if I teach for 30 or 40 years, I want students to know more about Black women's ideas. Right. I felt that they would take plenty of classes at Brown or elsewhere and perhaps get all of the Fanons and the CLR James and, and everyone else. But what was I going to give them that they would remember and, and really push the boundaries of knowledge in the academy? And I felt that Black women were on the margin, that even when you were teaching courses on, on race and gender, that Black women were oftentimes an afterthought, that in Africana studies, you know, you get the one Black woman week um, that they weren't seen as kind of the four, um, the most important ideas, right? So now you can say maybe Sylvia Winter has kind of, you know, pushed into the the core text in Africana studies. But I would say when I started, it certainly wasn't the case. So I think I became really committed to just teaching Black women. So I would say that from the very beginning, I just made a conscious effort to say, this is actually not that hard. I'm going to teach a syllab- syllabi of all Black women without announcing it to the public. So I would say, um, you know, I'm teaching a class on the diaspora. Black women are theorizing the diaspora and transnationalism without me having to say it's a class on Black women's ideas. Um, also, I found that um, when I taught classes that were so-called explicitly classes around Black women's ideas, people wouldn't necessarily show up for obvious reasons. Um, black women's ideas are not seen as kind of important or intellectual enough. When I changed a class that was originally entitled Black Women's Political Autobiographies to a course entitled Narrating the, the Self, I actually had a wait list. What's really important about that is perhaps the inst- institutional racism and sexism involved in that process of saying, why aren't there enough students in your classes? Why aren't people taking your classes? Pushed me to say, well, what's going on? All right, so I played to a certain extent the institutional game of saying, well, let me change it and get a sexy title. Um, and, and do a generic title and keep the same text. And it's interesting because that Black Women's Political Autobiography, um, autobiography course, the texts are the exact same. Asada Shakur, Elaine Brown, um, Angela Davis, the texts are the exact same. The title changed and people embraced the subject in a different kind of way. So I would say that I think I, if I think about my career and what I've set out to do, I've seen the difference over time with people citing more, the students are taking Black women's ideas more seriously, they're pushing male colleagues or whoever else to say, why aren't you teaching more Black women? Um, They're challenging guest speakers in classes. Um, So I would say that it's made a huge difference. But I would say it's it's a commitment. And in everything I do, organizing a workshop, um, to say, well, look, Black women have ideas, and why aren't they at the center of the conversation? Um, So I think, yeah, it's just become part of what I see as what makes sense to me. I can't stay in the academy if it doesn't make sense to me. And I think politically, teaching Black women's ideas makes sense to me. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that you've also done um, that I really respect and value is disrupting the Anglophone-centered approach that we have to celebrating Black women's ideas. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and, and how we can start to think more transnationally um, about citational politics and Black women? I think the next step for me is actually teaching classes that are multilingual. Um, I've actually 
put stuff as kind of recommended texts in classes to say, you know, read this alongside these texts produced in English. But I would say that from the very beginning of writing um, papers and seminars as a graduate student, writing my dissertation, that I always engaged um, texts that were written in multiple languages, as well as to try to write in multiple languages. Um, so I would say that um, doing research in Brazil uh, for my dissertation, I actually went to lo local libraries. So for example, the library at the, um, the, center, the, the center for Social Action Studies, which is a center that had done a lot of advisory for a lot of grassroots social movements, they have a vast library and scholars had written extensively about the kinds of social movements that had come out of Bahia. So why not cite their work? Um, the geographer Milton Santos um, was someone that I cited um, even then, and then learning more about other geographers like Beatriz Nascimento, et cetera, and even now writing about Lelia Gonzalez and to say, well, wait a second, if there are so many Black scholars and activists who are writing in Spanish and Portuguese, why aren't we taking them seriously? And I think, um, you know, I think for us to, if we're really invested in a global Black liberation project, we are going to have to read the texts that are being written in other languages. Um, and, and, you know, and take them seriously. Um, and I think that it is hard work to read and write and collaborate with scholars writing in, in, in other languages, but it's just part of what we have to do. Um, so I think the, the linguistic challenge is, is certainly important um, for us to talk more seriously about. And the, like I said, the next step would be how do we really truly create like bilingual syllabi or multiple te texts in multiple different languages on the syllabus. And I would credit that my... Um, graduate student, Katsi Yari Rodriguez Velasquez, who's from Puerto Rico, who really pushed the boundaries of Africana studies at Brown to say, um, she came into a department um, that is truly mostly monolingual and said, you know, you know, why aren't there more, more, you know, more attention to working in multiple languages? Um, and she's someone who's fluent as far as I'm concerned, I think Spanish, Portuguese, French, and English, right? So I think um, it really pushes us to think about how important is language and how is it important for us to really think about the global black diaspora and even classes on urban politics. I've incorporated stuff from France, from, from Africa, from Asia, et cetera, to really globalize our thinking all the time. Absolutely. I mean, I really encourage all of our listeners to, to seek out your work because I think that you exemplify in many ways what this what this project really looks like and what does it mean to, to do this work from the ground. I think I want to ask you one last question before we have to go. Um, and many of the people who engage with Sight Black Women are just starting out and they, they, they just want to they know something's wrong with the way that they're approaching their syllabus and their classes, and they just don't know where to start in order to try to, to, to restructure their approach and incorporate Black women into the core of their work. What kind of advice would you give them? I think that once you've decided that this is something that's important and politically important, I think it's actually easy to do. I think it's hard to keep syllabi not diverse and attentive to Black women's ideas. I don't know how people do it. I don't know how people organize classes, organize workshops, conferences, and have Black women on the margins. How do you talk about the elections and have Black women on the margins of those conversations? So I think that it's actually easier to do. Um, I think if you're committed to the project of saying, look, you know, let me truly incorporate the voices of the subaltern um, and decenter whiteness and, and, um, and really decolonize thought, I think you can find the Black women, you can find the Chicana women, you can find Asian women who are right in. I think it's easier. I mean, I think it's actually, um, 
I think people have to put a lot of effort into really maintaining um, a Eurocentric approach to disseminating knowledge. I think that takes a lot more effort than to actually um, use the scholarship um, of people of color and black women specifically. Um, so I would say that um, once you've decided you're committed to it, it's actually easy to find as well as to reach out to colleagues. If you're struggling with say, who's writing on housing? Who's writing, if you're teaching a class on citizenship, who are the black women writing on these ideas? Um, I think, you know, I think you can reach out to colleagues, you can do your own research. These are people who I find it really fascinating. Some of the most intelligent people on the planet, prize winning authors, um, you know, MacArthur Fellows, et cetera, who are then saying, oh, it's so hard to construct a syllabus that's truly diverse and attentive to the world's population and the, and the diverse group of ideas that are being generated around the world. These are some of the most brilliant people who are saying, oh, I don't know how to do this. I mean, how is that possible? So I think that it's excuses about around, are you truly invested in you know, decolonizing um, the academy? Or are you invested in reproducing, as the sailor Angela Johnny says, we reproducing a well um, or oiling a, a machine of reproducing um, white supremacist ideas? So I think that's the question, really. How can these very smart people have such a hard time doing the right thing? Thank you so much, Dr. Perry. As usual, it's a pleasure to talk with you and an honor, and we, we really thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sight Black Women. Follow us at Sight Black Women on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and our new website, www.sightblackwomencollective.org. And remember, it's simple. Sight Black Women. We theorize, we produce, we revolutionize the world. Mm -hmm.